This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Nothing can replace the pleasure of turning the pages of the printed book. Join us now as we explore our city's rich literary heritage, talking with people who are passionate about the printed word and celebrating the Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute's fascinating local history. Welcome to Wireless Books. Welcome everyone. That, don't you worry, that was just the head librarian falling into the station. <laughs> it is of course another edition of Wireless Books brought to you from the still rather swish studios of Otago Access Radio or Otago Access Media on and for the Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute, New Dunedin's oldest institution, bar none, and we're still going Really strong, wouldn't you say? Well, yes, we are, but I don't know that I am. <laughs> oh, no, look, you don't look a day of a seven, um, 42. <laughs> sure. And I haven't been here for since last year. No, I know. Um, yes, last time I, I got to have a very exciting time talking to myself. It must have been a real treat for the listeners. They must be so, so thrilled that you're back as I am. Oh, what? <laughs> I highly doubt that. Um, but anyway, how has your fortnight been? Oh, actually quite busy. Um, yeah, it's. Um, I feel like I've barely had time to turn around and touch my nose. Oh, goodness. Now tell me, with it, because Dunedin has a lot of cruise ships coming in, and I know that the Athenaeum is renowned for, you know, being in a Beautiful old building. Do you have many uh, tourists just come in t- through those double-windowed French doors just to have a, a gander? Yeah, we do, actually. Um, it's amusing. Sometimes the tourists seem to be able to find us much more easily than the locals. Yeah, funny that, yeah. <laughs> I had a man come in today, actually. He was a local, and he was saying, oh, yes, I've been to the theatre, but I didn't know about you guys. <laughs> It's expensive. We're much older than the theatre, actually. Oh, um, just very, very unobtrusive. Keep ourselves to ourselves. That's right. We just don't like to shout shout to the rooftops too loud. Um, We tend to find, what I tend to find is that um, it's people who are librarians. They they seem to hunt us out with passion. (laughs) I think they're just interested to see what other libraries are like around Mm. the world. And um, so... And do you know, I would imagine that some people from overseas um, who come here and they go into the Athenaeum are absolutely delighted for several reasons. One is because it's in in a beautiful building. The library itself is really interesting, intricate and beautiful with that gorgeous mezzanine floor, which is, you know, always, always a treat. One can't but help. Go around it because <laughs> of that, but also delighted. Well, for the bibliophiles, that there is still such a private, small library in existence. Mm. You know, I think so. I. But the other thing is, I think a lot of them think that we're the public library, and so well, they're being <laughs> disappointed in that case, wouldn't they? No toilets for a start. <laughs> Well, that that's the other big thing is redirecting people to where the public toilets are. But um, yeah, 
it's just one of part of the things of the job that people come in and you have a chat to them and yeah, lovely, really lovely. Mm. Yeah, it it is nice because of course people who love books are always lovely and always welcome. Mm. Now I've got some. Well, not so new books. I've got one very new book, though. It's called The Vanishing Point, and it's by Andrea Hotary, who, of course, is a local writer. Though I think she lives in Auckland now, but um, she's um, the daughter of Silla McQueen and Ralph Hotary. And I, she was interviewed, I think, on Kim Hill when this book came out. Was It's been out for a few months now. And... She was talking about what, what one of the things that was her inspiration for it and is that when she was oh, probably about 12 or so, she was travelling around Europe with her parents and they were in Spain and they were going to the um, different museums and stuff and so they were in a museum and it was sort of, it was hot and she was tired and so she, she sat down and plonked herself in front of a painting and her parents, they kept going, they had things to do and by chance, the painting she chose to stick herself in front of is one of the most famous ones or one of the most renowned ones in the history of um, Western art and it's... Um, now I'm going to butcher the French, Les Meninas, which the English translation is The Maids of Honour. And it's of the Infantina um, Margarita, who um, was the second daughter of Philip IV. And it's a painting that... The the infanta, she's about, she's just a little child. She's barely out of toddlerhood, and she has beautiful blonde hair, and she's wearing one of those horrible, weird dresses they had mm. with the very I, stiff skirts. It's that famous, even I know the painting. Yeah, <laughs> and she's surrounded by people. She's surrounded by her late her, her maids of honour, and there's two dwarfs, and there's a, a big dog, and there's a, the painter himself has included himself in the painting, and there's a man uh, in the doorway. Um, you don't know if he's coming or going, and he's he's looking back, and there's people. There's a a nun talking to somebody else in the background, and there's a mirror in which are reflected the Infanta's parents, um, the King and Queen of Spain, and they're, they're sort of. And you don't know is it is the mirror reflecting them, or is it the canvas of the painting that he's working on? And the perspectives are all a little bit out, and it's it's just one of those paintings that you can look at and look at and see something different all the time. And of course, so, and she was sitting in front of this amazing painting and she just spent a long time looking at it. And it's actually really influenced her her life because um, she, although she's a writer now, she actually did um, art history at university and um, was very, very involved in the art scene. And so part of the story is about Madrid in 1650. Six, yeah, 1656 when around the time that the painting was being done and and onward and the royal court and the intrigues and um and then we we moved to 1991 and the heroine Alec 
Jones, who's an art intern, and she is um, wanting to f- to uncover the p- the mysteries of the painting. And and like there's this a, th- a thing Picasso apparently said that the the painting was of curses of within curses, and oh. the royal family felt they were cursed because, of course, I've spoken about the Spanish royal family before and their, their, the Habsburgs and their propensity to, for incest, essentially. Um, for example, Philip IV, he was married first to a, a French princess and he had two two surviving children, a, a daughter and and a son, but the son died when he was in his early teens. And the son had been betrothed to Philip's niece. So so she married her uncle instead. And that's the infant's mother. Um, and so this was a marriage of a 42-year-old man to a 15-year-old girl. And she had the infanta and then they had other children and their final son Charles well she, he's the notorious one who usually um he had a he had the very pronounced, pronounced chin jaw mm, mm. and his his teeth couldn't meet because of his jaw and so he had great difficulty um eating mm, solid foods yeah. and and he was a bit simple and it was prone to Fits, fits of anger, just frustration and such. And and anyway, the infanta herself, she she grew up and um, was sent to marry the the Austrian emperor, emperor who of course was her uncle. And mm. uh, she she had and she left when she was about so she married when she was about fifteen, and apparently. She never learnt German, and but she used to. She used to, they, although there was a big age difference between them as well, and surprisingly, the marriage was reasonably happy. She always called him uncle, though, and <laughs> <laughs> it was her term of endearment <laughs> to him. And they had, oh, you know, she had these ch- children and children and children, but they died. And she died of childbirth in her um, early 20s, which is very sad. And the painting originally was called The Family of Philip IV. And it was incorrectly, excuse me, I'm just going to have a cough. <coughs> it was incorrectly, um, she, it was said that um, the infanta in the picture was actually her older half-sister, who she was very, very fond of. And... Her half sister, um, I can't. Who had a name like Margarita as well, but another M name, Maria or something. She um, actually was sent off to France to marry the French king, <coughs> which she did. So yeah, it was hard times. <laughs> <laughs> so it's sort of it's it's a mixture of of the. Um, Oh, it's the, the academic study of into the painting and what's happening, and also sort of almost an adventure story because there's sort of stuff going on. Like um, Alex, our heroine, her mother actually was died in um, unusual circumstances or um, 
mysterious circumstances, and she, and the mother was also obsessed by the painting, and was trying to track down its mysteries. How <coughs> typical! I've had a totally cough-free day, and the minute I get in front of the microphone, I my throat starts to scratch, and I need to have a good, a good cough. So anyway, that's a, an interesting book, and it's by a, a local author. Thank you, Christine. And now I've got another book, and it's by Terry Pratchett, and it's A Stroke of the Pen, The Lost Stories. And they've, through um, diligence, they discovered these stories that um, Terry Pratchett wrote in the 1970s and the 1980s that got published in um, provincial newspapers in England and it was when he was working as a journalist before he was a famous writer. And he published them under a pseudonym and they were just sort of quick and easy type things. But the, a lot of... The, I've, I've actually read this because I'm a big Terry Pratchett fan and they are very enjoyable, but they are they are fast and, and furious because they're, you know, they're probably only a thousand words each for the newspaper um, deadlines. And... He wrote this series, or a little um, series of book of stories that was published, and these people actually kept it. They cut it out of the newspaper, and they framed it and kept it in their house because they they adored them so much. Oh, nice! And but they cut them in such a way that it cut off the the which newspaper it was and the dates, so they knew. They worked out that they were by Terry Pratchett, and so when they, so people are always are always trying to find um, lost Terry Pratchett stuff, and there's been other um, anthologies of his early works published as well. So they went, they asked asked these people to try and find 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 this work, and instead of doing the logical thing and just um, working out the the date, which they sort of they sort of did know the date, and they could have just gone to nineteen seventy nine or whenever it was, and and did a thorough search of everything published in that year. Instead, they went back ten years earlier, and so they they trawled through the newspapers and they actually found and worked out what a pseudonym was, and so they found these twenty stories, and then they found the story that set them off originally that was published in the date that they had worked out already. So if they had just been sensible, they would never have found the other ones. So they, there you go. <laughs> it's one of those funny stories. And it's, I don't know, have you read Have you read Terry Patchett at all? A long time ago, and I did enjoy him to a point because really that's not, yeah, yeah the, not your yeah. thing. But I mean, he's great. I know he's great. I understand why he's so phenomenally popular. Yeah, I mean, he he can be very, very funny. I think that's just, I think that's why people love him. And he yeah. just created this alternative world, which was so fully formed. But of course, it was fully formed because he had, you know, 20 years or so mucking around working it out beforehand. <laughs> Before he started to get published, and yeah, oh, I I enjoyed it a lot. 
Well, there you go. High praise indeed. Look, I'm just going to give you poor old throat a wee bit of a rest and we'll play a sting, shall we? Oh, thank you. Oh, let me see if I get let me see if I get it correct. Oh, we'll go for that one. Yeah. The Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute welcomes new members. Enjoy the Athenaeum's quiet, warmly carpeted library and reading room and share in the joy of books, new and old. Visit www.dunedinathenaeum.org.nz for more information or pop into the Athenaeum Library at number 24, The Octagon. The Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute, celebrating Dunedin's rich literary heritage since 1851. Yep, since 1851. Yes, that's us. We've been beaving away, <laughs> <laughs> pushing books ever since. Yeah, book pusher. Yeah. Now I've got a. We've, we've given a whole lot of um, books. This romance is set in Australia. It's, it seems to be a real genre. This is The House at the Bottom of the Hill by Jenny Jones, who was a best selling Australian author. And she's created this series uh, about a town called Swallows Fall. And um, this woman, she goes. Her mother has died in a mysterious... This is the second woman who's had a mother with a mysterious <laughs> death. What are these mothers doing? <laughs> so she wants to find answers, and so she um, feels the answers can only be found in the one place. And so she buys a bread and breakfast establishment in Shadows Fall, Falls, a small town in Australian snowy mountains, as a ploy to get close to the man who might have the answers. And... <clears throat> She's quite an um, entrepreneurial woman, and she's she thinks, oh, well, I'll, I'll buy a house in this place and I'll go and poke around and try and work out what's happened with my mother. But at the same time, I'll jazz up the old place, flip it, and um, you know, be gone in two months max. But what she doesn't count in is opposition from the dogmatic and slightly eccentric members of the town council and the hotshot owner of the Kookaburra's Bar and Grill and his 200 squats a day for seek. (laughs) (laughs) So, easy-going Daniel Bradford knows progress is slow and swallows fall. He's finally about to put his plans into place to upgrade the hotel when a prim and proper countrified redhead blows into town, putting everyone on edge. So the only way to contain the trouble she's about to cause is to contain her, and he knows trouble when he sees it. So there you go. These so it's <coughs> Swallows Falls. So yeah. I'm just looking it up because do you know what? That sounds a lot like one of those Hallmark movies to me. That I mean, they, you know, could could be. Well, it is that sort of thing. Um, the the other book she wrote was The House on Bora Bora Lane, which oh. we, we don't have. Oh. <coughs> I'm just quickly... Uh, Going in here, I I actually read this. I because I always when I get new books, I always read a bit of them, and I actually read. I I sort of it was engaging, and I yeah. was sort of vaguely interested enough got, to. So I, yeah. I read it all. So the book's go. got four out of five by whoever reviewed it. So mm. there we go. And also, I've got it's not the latest; it's an old one called "The Children of Liberty" by Paulina Simmons the best-selling author of The Bronze Horseman. And this is another saga-y type book. And it starts with um, a girl called Gina who is sailing from Sicily to Boston's Freedom Docks. 
It's apparently for, at one stage, some, I think a fire or something happened at Ellis Island and you had to go into Boston instead oh. for a year or so while they were rebuilding. <clears throat> and so she goes into Boston with her mother and her brother because their father, who always wanted to immigrate to the United States, had, had died and they're sort of following his his dream. And there she meets a man, Harry Barrington, who is searching for his own place in the old world of New England. So she's <clears throat> an unrefined immigrant, and he is a first family Boston blue blood, yet they are hopelessly drawn to each other. So there you go. And um, The rest is history. Well, yes, and I think possibly this is part of a wider series of books because that's the sort of thing that Paulina Simmons does. She sort of starts off. Yeah, you know, she just make she writes these big sagary type things, and you either like big big sagas mm. or you don't. Um, I think I I don't like them because I always find it very annoying. You read a book and that sort of everything gets sorted out at the end, and then you go back to the 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 family and you're supposed to follow the doings of their children or else everything's ha- happy at the end of the book and the next book something's happened and they've all been torn apart again and then they've got to get back together again I think and I always think I've just spent <laughs> 220 pages getting these two people together before I'm not going <laughs> to I'm not going to waste another oh, Look I don't often say this but I know what you mean Christine and I totally agree very good. Well, I thoroughly enjoyed one of the books you gave me, The War That Saved My Life. Uh, oh, goodness me, I'm like you. By Kimberly Brubaker Bradley. Absolutely loved it. Children's story. Well, it's not a children's story. It's I would uh, liken this book as in like, the boy mm. um, in the stripe with the striped pyjamas because they're adult books but children can read them they're horrific um, absolutely yeah well we all know how horrific the subject matter is but they're written through um, the eyes of, of children and they're just absolutely universally brilliant um, as well. So I'd say to any of the members, if you love a good war story that involves really resilient children, yeah, the war that saved my life, that's one for you. It won, um, yeah, won an award, the Kimberley, no, sorry, not <laughs> Kimberley, the Newbury honour. <laughs> yeah. And I'm wearing my glasses, that's so embarrassing. <laughs> Funnily enough, you're wearing them. <laughs> yes, um, but you, I brought it. I put it aside for you because you were talking about how much you love the boy with striped pajamas, and I thought I bet this book oh, really. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Gosh, personal service. Yeah, it's yeah, it's about a girl who's got a, a twisted foot, and um, her her mother is um, basically seems to hate her, and. Um, her and her little brother are evacuated from London and they... Um... Well, there's more to it than that mm, because yes. the little girl wasn't going to be evacuated oh. to London and she taught herself to walk and she 
come hell or high water, she was getting on that train with her little brother. So she escaped and then again in the country. Oh, and that's what it reminded me of too, when her and her little brother were the last ones left. They were filthy, filthy, Mm. malnourished urchins. No one picked them at the nice country village. And so they were foisted upon a, a spinster. And do you know what? At that moment, I could have started to sing "Bibbidi Bobbidi Boo" because it reminded me then of Bedknobs and Broomsticks. So <laughs> it's just a beautiful book, beautiful book. It's actually beautifully written. It's a real page turner as well, and it's just so emotional. It's just so wonderful. Mm. Now I've just got something from a hundred years ago. It's very fast. And it's from the 29th of January, 1924. And it's many girls in offices who make their own tea find that there is milk left over, which will not keep fresh for the next day. Milk is useful for cleaning shoes, and it is a good idea to use up what is left in this way. Many a shabby-looking pair of brown or black shoes has become quite rejuvenated by a daily application of the leftover milk. Talk about good housekeeping. I was reading that and I thought, what are they on about? But of course, there was no refrigeration. No, no. So do you think the milk would stink after you put it on your foot? That was the second thing I was thinking. Your your shoes would smell of rancid milk. But I suppose... I suppose they were leather shoes that you're 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 rubbing the milk into. It, everything about it just seemed wrong. <laughs> I just feel that we need to send this to MythBusters and let them <laughs> test it out. What do you think? I think that's probably a good idea. <laughs> well, that's just wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations, Christine. You've never you've again filled in another half hour with entertaining coughing. snippets, <laughs> coughing. You, you, look, you're just a real person. So thanks for that. Nice seeing you again as well. Yeah. Yes. Keep up the good work, chum. Righty-o. So on that note. Happy reading. Happy reading, everyone. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.